Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We are now in this moment where there's a whole lot of different organizations who are attempting to work out what's going to be the way the non-devotees of large language model architectures, the rest of us, are going to encounter these things. What's going to be the user interface, the user experience, the business model, the corporate structure. And there'll be a kind of rearranging that we're in the middle of, right? And the thing about rearrangings is they always feel really uncomfortable. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I reckon it was only about six months ago that I was at a dinner with a group of friends and I was ranting about how artificial intelligence was potentially posing a bigger threat to humanity than the climate crisis. Now, my friends looked at me with the same disbelieving expression that I got when I ranted about the climate crisis five years earlier. Now, it's not so much that they didn't believe me, but they didn't want to believe me. Since then, ChatGPT landed over the Christmas break and everyone I know was mucking around with it over that dead period between Christmas and New Year. And suddenly we were all engaged in the potentialities and threats of AI. We got alive to it and we became aware of the discussions over the existential risk that it posed. It became front page news. A survey of AI experts found that half of those who make the AI rate our chances of being wiped out by the technology at 10%. Half of the respondents put it as higher. And some of you here might recall that some of the experts I've had here on the Wild podcast have spoken of risks at 50% and over. In April, more than 1,000 tech leaders, including Elon Musk, signed an open letter calling for a pause on all further AI development because of its, and I quote, profound risks to society and humanity. One of my friends from the dinner rang me two weeks ago. She said, oh my God, Sarah, it's actually a thing. Yes, the question officially now dangles. Could this mad race to build more intelligent AI see us create another Frankenstein's monster, an intelligence that destroys its creator? My guest today is possibly one of the best equipped people on the planet to answer that question. Genevieve Bell has been heralded as technology's foremost fortune teller for her magical predictive powers with technology and AI. 
She actually started out as a cultural anthropologist at Stanford, but was very famously discovered in a bar one night in Palo Alto by some tech dude 20 years ago, who offered her a gig as the first ever tech anthropologist, which is now a role that sort of exists in most tech companies around the world. Genevieve is also Australian, and she is now back here in Australia, based out of Canberra at the Australian National University, where she runs the School of Cybernetics. Her job is to tell us how tech and AI is affecting and will affect humans in the future. She spent slabs of her childhood on Aboriginal settlements in the north and west of Australia, where she learned a bunch of survival skills. She has been inducted into the Women in Technology Hall of Fame and was South Australia's thinker in residence for two years. Oh, and she holds 13 patents. Having the opportunity to talk to Jen at this very particular and pointy juncture in history is a boon. Now, I set out to get a straight answer from her on whether AI will in fact wipe us out. But she takes the question into some complex contextual and rather heavily couched places. I wanted a yes or no answer or a, or a statistic, as many of you might, but Genevieve was having none of that. And to be honest, the conversation turned out all the better for it. We recorded this chat in my hometown in Canberra, sitting in her School of Cybernetics office decorated with framed tea towels from the 1930s that encourage housewives to switch from gas to electric cooking, which has a nice familiarity to it, given that that's a campaign I've just been working on as well. Anyway, let's meet Genevieve. Genevieve Bell, welcome to Wild. It is wonderful to sit in your book encased office here in Canberra. I'm very excited to have you here. Let's just start with you explaining to us what cybernetics is. I feel it's actually less techie and less engineering than it sounds. Absolutely. So cybernetics is one of those words that when I say it, people kind of look at me and think, oh, I know I've heard that before and it's like a test I'm about to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality is the reason you've heard it before is that cybernetics is a word's been around for a while. It's a made-up word, but it was made up in the 1940s, so like, you know, last century. And the reason you'd know it now is that it's been lingering in science fiction for at least mm. the last 50 years. So if you're my age, i.e. not quite old but getting there, you can see it from there, yeah. uh, you know, you'll know it from the Terminator movies, so the yep. Cyberdyne, you know, corporation, or if you're also my age and you grew up in the British Commonwealth, you might recognise it from Douglas Adams' serious yep. cybernetic corporation. And as a word... Well, it's, you know, got a good origin story, right? So yeah, 1940s, 1940s, America, New York City, the Beekman Hotel, bunch of people sitting around arguing about the future. They'd all been implicated in the war in some way. You know, mm -hmm. they'd either been working on the Manhattan Project or working on computers or working on how to think about societal reconstruction. They'd been impacted by the Holocaust. They'd been impacted by bombs. and Existential shit. Big stuff. Mm. And I think they were all sitting there and going... We've seen what technology can do. We've seen the world we've just come out of and we want to imagine a future that doesn't feel like the present and the past we have just lived through. And they were really, I mean, the people who are building computers themselves, right, having this kind of moment of going, okay, we built this thing and it was used to aim guns and is that what we want here? And so they were arguing about what the world would be like and about what it should be like. And for me what's fascinating about that moment is the people that are in the room. So it's, you know, Von Neumann, the man who builds the ENIAC, yeah. so the world's like first big computer. A guy named Norbert Wiener, who is this mathematician, polymath, kind of a nutter, but, you know, this man who's deeply interested in how humans and machines will interact. Two anthropologists, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson. Oh, a woman. 
Well, actually, a lot of women in these conversations and people from elsewhere in the world and people from multiple Diversity. disciplines. Uh, they understood oh. it from day one that actually you needed multiple points of view in the room. Nice. So Namid's there and she's sort of interested in culture and how culture shapes what we do and that not all humans are the same and variation's interesting and... Bateson is really interested in psychology and the mind and would go on to be really interested in ecology and sustainability and the environment. And they've got Arturo Rosenbluth there from Mexico who's interested in biofeedback and the body. They've got philosophers, psychoanalysts. What a room to be in. Oh, damn, it must have been something. Yeah. And so this was cybernetics in action, people yep. from diverse backgrounds, backgrounds trying to discuss the the impact of technology technology. and how it will impact future humans. And with an eye not just to talking about it but working out how they build a better future. And so what cybernetics ultimately means as a word is it describes a phenomena or a, a way of thinking about complex systems. And the idea was that we wanted to be able to have a way of constantly thinking about and building complex systems, so systems that involved people. Mm-hmm. and technology in a place. And the word cybernetics borrows from the Greek, from a Greek word kybernets, which loosely kind of means steerage or governance. So think of it as the person who is holding the rudder in a boat. So if you're old enough to remember yeah. small boats, like your tinny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so think boat, think person in boat, think holding the rudder or the engine. And mm. so that's a complex dance, right? It's not just you moving through the water, it's you and a boat and an engine having to navigate this On compli- behalf of, presumably, of yep. a lot of people. Yep, yeah. but also, you know, you're having to think about how do you constantly course adjust, how are you finessing mm. the boat and the water and your body moving through it. And for him, kyber- kybernets and then cybernetics was about that complex dance. Well, what a wonderful time to be talking about all of this because that kind of thinking is back on the agenda again. And we'll get to that in a moment because that's really what I want to be talking about with you. But, yes, you <laughs> actually started out as a cultural anthropologist but and I love this story. You got discovered in a bar in Palo Alto one night by some bloke and you wound up being offered a fantasy job at Intel where you're still vice president. It reminds me of one of those stories about a model who gets discovered outside <laughs> Wendy's, you know. Can you tell the story of how... Um, that job came about. I've never thought of it like that. That's fabulous, Sarah. Every okay, model so, has a story like that, right? I know, but I've like being discovered in a bar is like kind of horrifying, but very Australian. And so, true, I think, right? Oh, dead set true. So look, here's the thing. You know, I go to the US to do my undergraduate degree because I wanted out of Australia. And so I ended up at Stanford doing my PhD and I was working in, you're right, cultural anthropology. My area of interest and expertise in those days was ethno-history, so the study of history before the written word in some ways or the study of histories on the margins. And I'd finished my PhD. I was on the faculty at Stanford, which was kind of a big deal, about as good as it gets for anthropologists really. Yeah. <laughs> and I was in a bar in Palo Alto, a place called Pearls, now long gone, and I was with a mate of mine and this bloke started talking to me and asked me what I did. And I said, I was an anthropologist. He said, what's that? I said, I studied people. He said, why? I said, because they were interesting, thinking it's a very strange conversation. He's like, well, what do you do with that? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm an academic. And he's like, can't you do more? Mm. I'm thinking, like, this is as good as it gets not, for me. Not and, insulting at all. And I was like, I'm kind of done with this conversation. I didn't really mm. think a lot more about it. And I went home and then he called me the next day at my house. First one's out of my mouth. Well, how did you, because I had given him my number, how did you find me? He's like, oh, you know. I called the department and then I realised what he actually meant was he'd called every anthropology department in the Bay Area looking for a red-headed Australian and the secretary of the anthropology department at Stanford had said, oh, do you mean Genevieve and would you like her home phone number? 
It was the 1990s and you may remember and some of your listeners I'm sure will remember, there's that bit when you're freshly out of school and the promise of free food motivates you to still do most things. And so Bob, who was the bloke on the phone, is basically saying, you seem interesting. And I'm like, Bob, I'm not that kind of person. He's like, no, no, I'm interested in what you, you know, what, what do you know? And he's like, I'll buy you lunch. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I said yes to free food. And then, you know, it kind of escalated from free food to a plane ticket to Portland. And then it was come meet the people at Intel. And they offered me a job and I said no, because I couldn't work out what the job was. And that went backwards and forwards for a while. And then I woke up one, one day a long time ago in Palo Alto, Menlo Park, and I thought to myself, I know how to be an academic, right? I know what that path looks like. And if I'm really good and I work really hard and I'm really careful, I might get tenure. And if I do all of those things and I get tenure, maybe I can keep doing what I think is really important, which is working out how to change the world one conversation, one student, one moment at a time. And that that's a path that was there. And I looked at this invitation from Intel to join an industry I didn't really understand, to do a job that no one could describe for me in an ecosystem I really didn't grasp and I had no idea whether the skills I had were translatable except in the back of my head there was this thought, right, and the thought was companies like that seem to be building the future and they don't have people like me in them and I was <laughs> had enough hubris to think that people like me could make a difference. I was like maybe if you're building the future it might be really good if you had some anthropologists in the conversation and people who wanted to say, oi, what about users? Hey, what do people care about? Hey, is this a good idea? You know, do we want this? Not everyone's like you. Have you talked to other people? And they were so determined that they wanted to hire me that I sort of, I had a moment of thinking, this is a foolish thing to keep saying no to. And so I called them back and said yes. And within two weeks, I'd quit my job, quit my, you know, my job at Stanford. I'd left California. I'd moved to a city I didn't know anyone. And I'd turn up in this weird gray blue building in a cow paddock and gone through an orientation process. And my new boss is sitting me down like, and saying to me, hi, we're really excited you're here. And I do remember this rising sense of panic at that moment in time of thinking, I've given up a job I understood in an industry I understand in a sector I know what the rules and regulations that kind of, you know, tacit and otherwise are. And I've ended up in a place where I don't even know how to make sense of the job that I've just been given, let alone what it implicates about this place. And this may have been a terrible, terrible decision. And then I took another deep breath. And I remember thinking, oh, actually, what this means is I have a lot of work to do yeah. and I need to get going. So your job essentially was to work with Intel and to almost look at what the future implications were going to be of various technologies, uh, essentially a yeah. futurist. Uh, look, there were, so there were a lot of futurists when I started and I'd, I never thought of my job that way. I thought my job was about I didn't work with them. I worked for them. Right? I was in a big lab where everyone was working about how to build the future. And what I brought to the puzzle was an ability to articulate what it is that people were doing and what the consequences of that might be for what we should develop. And over time, I came to be labelled as a futurist. Mm. I always resist that label. You've been described as a superstar futurist. I'm wondering if you can actually <laughs> describe some stuff for listeners that you, I don't know, predicted, foretold or helped develop ideas that you brought yeah, yeah. to the table. Look, my favourite futurist is a guy named William Gibson. Gibson got asked about the future and I reckon the journalist hoped he'd say, oh, it's all blinky lights. And what Gibson said is, look, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And I've always thought that was a really interesting provocation, right, because what he says is, and one way of reading that, so the way I read it, is to say 
it's not about imagining the future, some foreign country we're going to travel off to. It's about can you look around you, pay enough attention to work out where the future's already appearing. And part of the reason I love that quote was in 2003, one of my amazing colleagues, another Australian actually in the university system here, was doing some work in Tokyo and she sent me this picture from a train platform as all these people holding phones, looking at their phones. Today you look at this picture and it it, it looks ubiquitous. Like, it looks now. Mm. I mean, you have to sort of you have to really pay attention to work out this is actually a twenty year old photo. And I remember looking at this image and I finished doing field work in just doing a bunch of stuff in Asia and I that was certainly my lived experience. I'd done a bunch of work in Europe. It had been my lived experience there. I remember taking this photo and these stories of Docomo. So it's no reason you remember Docomo, but in the early 2000s, Docomo was the Japanese telco company, so Japanese tele- telephony company. And they were making mobile phone handsets and a data system that meant you could stand on a platform and order food, you could do online dating, you could do location-based services so you could find the nearest shop to you when it was open, all of which at the moment sounds like, yeah, who cares? But in 2003, you couldn't do that anywhere in the world except in Japan. And I'm babbling about this completely excitedly to the man in charge of research at Intel. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, this is it. This is everything. This is the future. And he just looked at me and said, no, it isn't. So the idea of us using our phones for everything but also having a relationship. Oh, and the fact that, you know, at that point, you know, these same Japanese consumers were putting photos of their friends in the battery compartments of their phones because it was before phones had cameras, right, but they were storing their photos of their besties inside the battery case like a locket, right? They were carrying these things in their hands all the time. They decorated with the same things that they decorated, shrines and temples. They were using them to make connections. I just looked at all of that and I'm like, this is not just Japan. This is what is coming. As soon as you can make a phone smart enough that it knows where it is and who you are, all these other things are going to happen. And I thought I'd seen the future in the present, right? And I couldn't stop talking about it. And, and did it impact anything that Intel did or? Listen, it did, but for all, it did, but in a very different way over time. Because when I said that, no one believed me. Like, I think they just thought I was demented. And I am demented. And I was probably overly enthusiastic because I often am. And I'm sure I'd had coffee and I'm sure <laughs> I was quite like, it's about this. And they all just kind of went, eh, that's just Japan. And I'm like, but also Europe. They're like, eh, that's just Europe. I'm like, I really don't think so. And it didn't change the decisions they made at the time. But what it did do over time was allow us to have a completely different conversation, a conversation that let us work out as a company that computing wasn't just about computers and that people were going to want to connect to their things through all kinds of platforms in all kinds of places. And it let us change our thinking. At the time, I think for me the bigger challenge, and I'm sure this is a challenge for lots of futurists, you can see the future and no one believes you. Mm. And so I think for me, did I predict the world we're coming into now? No, but I saw it very clearly in 2003. And, three. Right? and you became quite well known for that. So, look, I want to move on to the really big issue at the moment and cybernetics just plays into it so mm-hmm. beautifully. The big question is, is AI going to destroy us? I mean, this is what a lot of people are talking about and it's quite a new debate. But bear with me while I outline what I kind of feel is the basis of the perceived threat. Mm -hmm. So the first one is this idea of misalignment, that these robots, these intelligences, will follow programming in ways that we can't predict. So the example, of course, is that 
the paperclip robot who's been programmed to make as many paperclips as possible. And they follow that instruction to the T and use up all available atoms on the planet, including humans, to just make a lot of paperclips. So that's an example that's used a thought experiment. So that's a misalignment piece. The second one is this idea of generalised intelligence, that what we're creating could become smarter and more savvy and capable than us. And when you bear in mind that this technology is being inbuilt with our current biases, the human biases that already exist around consumption, destruction, gender, and so on, that it'll become not only smarter, but might do what we do when threatened with something, and that is to destroy it. Ergo, Mm -hmm. this technology will wipe us out. And of course, a lot of listeners would be aware of this sort of study that was done last year that found that half of engineers who are making this technology agreed with the statement that there's a 10% risk that, you know, AI will wipe us out. And in fact, I've spoken to people on this podcast who've said that that risk could be as high as 50, 60, 70%. So I'm going to ask you, Genevieve, what do you make of these risk assessments of, of AI? Where is the threat sitting as far as you can tell as a futurist? Oh, I'm the kind of futurist you're going to hate. Because, listen, you tell me the story of the paperclip robot and I can't help but hear the sorcerer's apprentice and then I can't help but hear the golem story. And I think one of the things we're actually encountering here is not technology prospects and possibilities per se, but the shape of our socio-technical imagination. That's a big phrase. What do I mean by that? I mean the ways we think about technology and what it can and can't do aren't just about the technology itself. They are also shaped by all the stories we have about technology. And most of the stories we have about technology in the 21st century came about long before the technology itself existed. So our stories about runaway AI inflected through you know, lenses of dystopic science fiction. Our stories about artificial intelligence are framed not just by movies but also by print, not just by movies and print but by stories that come out of all of our religious canons. Yep. And they're stories that have deep cultural roots. So the socio-technical imagination means that when we think about technology, we are mobilising two different things, the technology and the stories we tell about it. And so for me, I always want to take a step back and sideways when people ask me these questions and do a couple of pieces of work, right? One is to steadfastly remind ourselves that artificial intelligence started as a conference and mm-hmm. it started as a rallying cry under which to organise a whole bunch of disparate work going on in industry and universities and to get basically a couple of thousand dollars worth of money so that a bunch of people could sit around for a summer talking about things. So at that point, it wasn't a technology. It was a research agenda. Hmm. And to this day, artificial intelligence isn't a technology. It is a constellation of technologies and processes and practices and regulations. You and I are sitting in my office. We can't point at AI in my office. We can point at a desk, we can point at a computer, we can point at a microphone, and even those, while they appear to be technologies, are actually constellations of stuff. The reason that's important is every time we say AI, Mm -hmm. we make it sound singular, monolithic, and stable. And I mean to destabilise it, not in the sense of it's going to run away and kill us, but to say, actually, it's not a tidy thing. And so in imagining a robot that makes paperclips, that runs away and 
is compelled that there's no off switch and all it does is make paperclips, right? The reason that story sounds probable is not because automation has made possible a relentless cycle. We know that you know, most factory lines break at some point. No, the reason that story works is that we grew up with stories about machinery that we could never turn off. Frankenstein, Gollum, all those things, right? So part of the reason that story feels like it must be true is because we're primed to imagine it. That story doesn't work in other cultures. I firmly believe you actually have to acknowledge why people's anxieties exist in these spaces, right? I'm not wanting to say here, oh, you're just, you know, influenced by science fiction. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are a particular set of narratives that we wrap around technology that make our anxieties about them amplified and get manifested in very particular ways. It is also the case that us being anxious about technology more broadly is a perfectly rational response to the last 150 years of technology. But we need to be really clear there, right? What is it that we're anxious about? Are we anxious about unintended consequences of technology? Reasonable. Mm -hmm. We have medicines that didn't do what they were supposed to do. We have things that seemed perfectly, quote unquote, safe when they first started that rapidly became not safe. Or we have things where the affordances of the moment they were built turned out not to be helpful over time. So, you know, steam engine's good at the beginning, not so good when you discover they've taken all the wood in the planet. Okay, so leaving aside the story piece, I am just wondering, do you agree with these engineers who are saying, you know, in the main, um, or at least 50% of them are agreeing with the idea that there's a 10% chance that AI will bring us to some kind of human extinction event. 10% is a very high risk. You know, would you work on something that had a 10% risk of wiping out humanity? Would you not want to stop right there and go, this is too big a risk given the so damage? My, my, my query here is not about would I work on that. My query there is what's the question that's being asked of those engineers? What is it they think they're answering? And are they the ones most qualified to understand what the risk to humanity might be of a system they're building? My suspicion is there's some other people you might want to be asking that question of and whether we should listen to engineers as the best people to opine on the possibility of computational's destructive power is a very different thing right now. I think there are some questions we might want to be asking engineers about this that would be more productive, which would be questions around, okay, so you're building the most recent generation of artificial intelligence or any other computational programming of the day, it seems to require a lot of energy to function. How are we thinking about the energy budget of this computation? How are we thinking about doing it in a more sustainable way? What's the actual problem that you imagine you're solving or world you think you're building? What is the critical vocabulary you have for unpacking the thing you are doing? How do we upskill and create a set of practices amongst our engineering and computing colleagues that allow them to have a more sophisticated vocabulary and critical framework for talking about these systems. Because when I look at them and I think about, well, you know, the most recent set of generative AI activities, so things that alternately get glossed and they get used interchangeably even though they aren't, large language models, chat GPT, generative AI, I mean, they're all different things, right? What they do have in common is they all require a lot of computing power, like all the computing power, like yeah. a very large supercomputer, a very, very large supercomputer just dedicated to doing this. And the thing about very large supercomputers and computing arrays and all the computational power that is required here is it uses a shed load of electricity, like a lot of electricity. Like we're talking 
a quantifiable percentage of the world's energy budget is being spent on server farms. So if you were to say to me what I actually think the genuine risk at the moment is, I think the genuine risk at the moment is not that we are going to have some program decide that it needs to take over the world because, by the way, these programs don't have intentionality, causality or capability in that sense. I'd be much more concerned that we were going to build a series of computational tools without asking a set of critical questions about whether the planet can sustain them. And those are very different things. Do I actually believe that ChatGPT is going to plug into, it's going to somehow, because it is, let's be clear, a large language model with some training data sets on either side, do I imagine it is somehow going to turn into Cyberdyne and nuke us? Absolutely not. But the, the point is we don't know. And the point no, is... No, no actually, that, that's, Sarah, in that case, we do know. That's, well, we know that aspect of things, but we don't know how it could extrapolate out. We don't know where it's heading. And back to where, your which, point... Where which is heading? The direction of all of this progression. Because, and back to your point, we're not sitting down and having these yep. conversations now. This is, I think, and, the really important piece. And we're not good because, again, I want to be really careful here and deliberate. We need to be better in our conversations about separating out mm. a compute architecture, a business model, a commercialization strategy, and an organization company or nation's aspirations for those because we conflate all of it as though it were one thing and the reality is those are all quite different things and the reason I think you need to separate them out is the points of intervention, the points of control and the places where we might reasonably want to query what's going on are very different, right? So the architecture of a large language model is very different than the commercialization strategy based on the top of that, is very different than a company or an organisation wanting to embed some version of that inside their functioning, is very different than what a government or other regime wants to do here, right? And at the moment it's really easy to talk about that as it was all the same thing and the reality is those are all quite different things and teasing them apart, yeah, I know it's like really boring work and every time I say it I see people go, I just want to talk about AI. I'm like, well, I do too, but I want to be clear that we are talking about the same thing when we do it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, I do want to flesh this out a little bit further, but maybe a good pivot point for this might be the recent open letter that was signed by over a thousand engineers and tech leaders calling for a pause on further development of AI, I think beyond chat GPT 
version five or whatever it is. And I've got some thoughts on that, you know, and I'm sure you do too. And I, I can't help but think of a quote from an interview that you did some time back where you say, I want to drag the future here and see if we want it. And I really do think that that is the central question here. How much of everything that's going on do we want? Now, the pause presumably would give us an opportunity to maybe ask some of these questions, but call me cynical, I just see it as an opportunity for tech leaders to go and fine-tune their technology, take it even further in 18 months and then just sort of plant it on us. I guess the question I have for you, because you are so involved in this realm, is anyone having these kinds of questions? You said they're these sort of boring considerations that need to be sort of talked about and they're quite separate and there's a number of them. But can you just tell me, because this is a question I've wanted to ask of many people out there, are these conversations happening? And if so, where? And are they of global significance such that, you know, everyone will sort of sign up to it? I know that a lot of the argument that's being put forward for why we shouldn't pause is because, well, China and Russia, they're not going to take any note of this. They're just going to keep surging ahead. And it's very much like that arms race, that zero-sum game. So is there a place in the world, is there a scenario where there might be some kind of global discussion and agreement on all of these various factors at play? Look, I think our history tells us we can do it and our history tells us that we can't at the same time, right? So it turns out I'm not one of the helpful futurists. I'm one of the futurists that thinks actually the way you have to have these conversations is to keep unpacking and unpicking them. Right? I don't think it's a straight So yes. the messiness you're saying is all part of this. Absolutely, because we can look... I find that reassuring, to be honest. Good. <laughs> it makes me happy because, I mean, I think when we look at the history of critically interrogating technologies, right, and having a moment of going, oh, God, is that actually what we want to have happen? We have multiple examples that we can point to of having had moments where we've pulled things back, right? So like whether, what? Uh, oh, I can think of a couple over the last 100 years, right? So I can point to one quite recently with computer vision, so where we saw multiple American tech companies stop using facial recognition technology until they could work out what an appropriate framework for it was. And that includes Microsoft, who pulled it out of a whole series of their product offerings and just said, look, until we can get clearer about what the problems are here, and they were really concerned about racial bias inside some of the technology, and they were concerned about the applications it was being put to. Mm. So we've, we've seen... That's happening still, isn't it? It's an ongoing discussion. Oh, absolutely. And, about, you know, and, of course, Sydney, the Microsoft yep. version of, you know, of this technology that New York Times journalist exposed that it had a few issues with other people's relationships and they pulled it for yep. a bit. And so we've certainly got clear examples both of individual companies pulling products off the shelf when they didn't work the way they wanted to and, you know, those go back to there's an excellent, just because sometimes it's nice to have a happier, funnier example, scary, silly. Thomas Edison, long before he was making electrical companies, made a, a miniature doll. I should probably use the first talking doll. And it had a, a miniaturised, mechanised ring inside it. You pulled a string out the back and it sang you nursery rhymes, but it sounded like something in the basement that was going to kill you and it never succeeded <laughs> as a product. And while technically it was brilliant, the UI was terrible and so we pulled it off the market. So, like, we know people make commercial reasons to pull things when they don't work. We also know that there are domains of activity where people have pulled back from it. So I think, you know, facial recognition technology is clearly one of those. Over the last 100 years, we've also seen people create rules for nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, certain kinds of classes of drugs. We've seen those pulled on and off the market. So I think we have national and international tools for doing that. We equally, on the other hand, 
have certainly seen things continue, arguably recklessly and fecklessly, depending on the mm. day. And social media, I think, might be a good example of that. I often find myself going, are we not going to learn from the lesson of social media? It came out as a novel thing. We engaged in it and it just took off. And at no point did anyone go, is this what we want? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, one of the things you're pointing to there, which is such a hard thing to think about, is you don't always know in the early stages whether the thing's going to be, I used to think of it as hula hoops or bicycles. Like, you know, will it be here for a season? And point to a lot of things because hula hoops were very big for a brief moment mm, in time. But mm. what they also proved was movies were a good way of advertising things. Music videos were going to be a winner and a global supply chain was completely excellent versus bicycles, which, you know, reconfigured cities and our, our, our lives and our sort of social worlds. And I think one of the challenges we often have in these moments is being able to tell the difference, right? Are we looking at hula hoops or bicycles? And both of them are important because they both index something, but you probably have different frames for them. And my best futurist intuition, the non-helpful futurist type here, the messy futurist intuition is that we're in the moment of a rearrangement yeah, and a rearrangement right. that for me the most useful echo I can hear is the rearrangement that happened between basically 1988 when Tim Berners-Lee says, oi, we could index, we could index all those computers and all their stuff and he you know, basically creates the web. And about 2003, when Google is clearly going to be the people that have worked out how to take that indexing technology, make it into search, have a business model, and the white box on the internet is just what's there. And in between, there are all these other companies that if you our, Came and went. Our vintage, you might vaguely remember. So Mosaic, Alta Vista, mm -hmm. Yahoo, Ask Jeeves, my fave, all of which were attempting to work out how to take that insight about indexing the web and turn it into something that people wanted to do. And in that period of time, there were some very, very ugly ways of attempting to index the inter internets, which were just like pages of text, and it was kind of ghastly. And all the early versions of it look ludicrous to our 21st century eyes, right? They're cluttered and busy and blue and grey and, oh, just kind of unbelievable. But all of them, we're all trying to work out what the right user interface should be, what the right user experience should be, what the business model was going to be, what the corporate structure was going to be. And there were lots of experiments in that moment in time. And depending on who you were and where you were sitting in the ecosystem, any one of those looked like they might be successful. And frankly, when Google came along, it looked like the least successful one because we hadn't yet come to recognise that a good user interface on the web was going to be less, not more. I think we're in another one of those rearrangements, right, where we've got a new architecture. So like Berners-Lee and the web, you know, indexing kind of the content on computers, which is a, that's a terrible way of describing it, I know. <laughs> but we're sort of in that next moment where... We have large language models as a way of indexing all the data that we've collected in the intervening 20 years, right? And large language models, there are a couple of different architectures. There are some different people who are really good at thinking about this stuff. And there's some interesting stuff that's happening there of how do we think about words and the relationships between them and prevalence and all that stuff. Right? And, you know, if you like those kind of things, they're kind of fab. We Those started five years ago, some six or seven, depending on who you believe. We are now in this moment where there's a whole lot of different organisations, some commercial, some not, who are attempting to work out what's going to be the way the non-devotees of large language model architectures, the rest of us, are going to encounter these things. What's going to be the user interface, the user experience, the business model, the corporate structure? And there'll be a kind of rearranging that we're in the middle of, right? And the thing about rearrangings is they always feel really... Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable because we're all sort of used to a thing. Like we know we use Google as a verb. Hmm. I'll just Google that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's enough embedded in our consciousness that I'm sure for most people the notion that you could get information off the web that wasn't in a white box would just be like, well, what would that have possibly looked like? And so there's something about this moment where it's not just about that the conversation's about AI, it's the the conversation's also about rearranging things that have been certain and making them uncertain again and of having to go through a moment where people are competing for our attention, our time, our money, our affection, because frankly that's tied up in all of this too, right? And then you kind of, if you also think about what happened in the kind of the 20-year cycle, the last 20 years, it wasn't just about Google making search a thing. It was about all the other things that happened as a result of that, social media, as you reasonably point out, but also mobile phones, also other ways of thinking about what data could be for us, about the ways we see ourselves reflected through all of that. So when we say what would it mean to take a pause, I think what we're partly responding to is the fact that we know there's about to be this rearrangement and how do we want to think about what that looks like and whether we know it consciously, I'm sure most of us know in some way in our brains that the other thing that happens here is that some stuff we like isn't going to continue and some stuff we don't like is going to appear. And it's the tiny version of, but that organisation's been in my life, my whole life, and they're gone now. And I don't know how I feel about that. And I don't know who all these people are. and I don't understand their motives. And it's all sped up. And there's less time for us to adjust to oh, this rearrangement. That's a really significant part of this. Oh, and more than that, right? So the other thing that's so different from, you know, 20-plus years ago, I was laughing with a mate of mine. I was at one of the really early demos of the web in the valley because I was in grad school, right, hanging around it. I'm sure there was free food. Almost like that's how <laughs> I would have again. ended up there, like, you know, raison d'etre, you know, someone was offering me a meal. And at the time we all kind of went, yeah, and kind of went on with our lives. And there weren't that many people at that demo and not that many people talk about it. And I flash forward to now and I think, look, one of the things that's really different, you're right, it's the speed, but it's also the density of the networks we're implicated in. So most of us in any given day have communications with a whole lot of people and those communications are on, I think, sort of shorter and denser, right? So you could see me making my hand gesture, I'm leaving my fingers together and saying it's much denser and the networks are much tighter. And that tends to mean you hear the same thing from multiple different places. So... I imagine, you know, Sarah and I live in a world where a whole lot of people are sharing the same videos with both of us, right? Oh, my God, here's this talk. Did you see what this person just did? Did you hear Elon with the BBC? Have you seen this video? Did you read that thing in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker? And it feels like it has this incredible presence because it's coming at us from so many different places. And I think one of the really hard lessons that I don't know how we internalise well is just what has happened to time and space that way in the last 20 years and how we keep remembering to learn to be critical, right? I mean, I know, you know, Sarah of the I quit sugar and I quit gas, I think there's a bit about how do, not I quit, but how do I see those networks and the way they work for what they are, right, which is that they amplify and not necessarily help us. Got it. Because they, they come at you so quickly, it's hard to kind of take a breath and go, oh, is that real? Like, why am I getting that from five different places? Does that mean it's important or does it just mean a whole lot of people saw it? I guess for the average person listening who's not in this world, we have all of this coming at us. We're more engaged in this kind of recorrection, this rebalancing, mm-hmm. this yep. assessment period by virtue of the fact that, we, you know, technology is part of our lives. The question I think we have is, is there a group of highly responsible representative people 
talking this. And and one of the things that we've mentioned a couple of times now is biases. Mm -hmm. Biases are so inherent in so many of the problems that we face in a non-technological world. They're seeping into technology. And is there anybody looking into that? Is there this sort of this conference of people going, hey, guys, before we take this any further, let's see if, for instance, voice recognition is biased towards men. If ChatGPT, which draws on all of the information ever put onto the the interwebs might be slanted towards men and, you know, white Anglo-Saxon orientated peoples. Is that happening, Genevieve? Yeah, so look, I think it's a really good question, Sarah. So in the 40s, there were lots of conversations. The cybernetics one is the one I know well, but there were other people litigating all kinds of things about the future. Look, I think one of the challenges right now is I actually suspect there are a lot of conversations going in a lot of different places convened by a lot of different people. So there are certainly working groups convened by the United Nations, by the World Economic Forum, by UNESCO, by various think tanks in the US, Australia, elsewhere. You know, we have seen multiple groups think and debate and litigate. And And what's going to become of all of that? Is it going to be coalesced, you know, into some... Not entirely, and I think one of the challenges is not just that they're not coalescing, it's that I'm not sure that they all are as expansive as they might be. So one of the things I really liked about the cybernetics conversations is that they were willing to imagine that they needed to be drawing inspiration from lots of places that weren't the obvious ones. And Mm. so they were having conversations about, you know, octopuses and consciousness and bees and children's learning. That gets me so excited. Well, because they they really... Can we do the same thing now, Genevieve? Well, I mean, I wish we could because one of the things I always worry about here, so you ask me what I do worry about, I worry about that people have conversations that are too literal, that are too instrumentalist, that are too focused on the thing at hand and they don't sort of take a step back and say exactly to what you just said. Oi! We've been down this path before. Did we Did we learn nothing? Mm. And I look at it and I say, we've been down this path, not just then, but back in the 1800s. Like, we've, this is a path that we've seen multiple times. So, like, where's the kind of the learning and how do we have those conversations? Is it cohering to something? Yeah, look, I think it is, actually. I suspect there's a, a couple of places where the conversation is cohering. The European Union has a very strong orientation to managing and regulating data, the consequences of data, data frameworks, bias in data, algorithms. There is a long history in Europe tied up with the consequences of World War II and the Stasi and other forms of surveillance. That means there are very strong regulatory frameworks that come out of there and I think are always incredibly useful as a starting point to look at where are the first places you can attempt to regulate and what do those look like? Mm -hmm. I think they're always a really useful place. I think there are a couple of global conversations being driven out of various transnational organisations that are also trying to work through sort of two things at once, right, which is what would a set of regulations or regulatory possibilities look like and where are the places we need to be both most worried and most active and what does active look like? I think those are really kind of useful conversations. And part of the problem is we're discussing it within the framework that has almost caused... Indeed. These problems and so, in the first place. And so for me, I sometimes think the most interesting and useful conversations are not inside any of that at all. So I think this brings us nicely and neatly a little full circle back to your anthropology work because we're talking about systems change. We're talking about complexity that our material, modernist world really struggles with. 
And what do you know? Some of the best stuff is coming out of Indigenous-led complexity theory that is popping up once again around the world. And I know this is something that probably interests you. Do you see some really good inroads happening through those theories? In fact, I would have said the most interesting conversations I get to be privy to and listen to have to do with my First Nations colleagues all over the world who are thinking about what does it mean to take First Nations knowledge, First Nations cosmology, First Nations ontology, so always saying how do First Nations people think and make the world and use those as starting points. I think this is very new to people listening and I promise I am going to take this conversation further because it's kind of new to me as well but it excites me. I think the idea behind this is that Indigenous thinking, by virtue of the way that they've interacted with the natural world... And with each other. And with each other, encapsulates various techniques, approaches Mm -hmm. that can comprehend complexity and solve problems in a very different way. And, you know, and we can take... Two very different, really concrete examples, right? So you and I sitting in my office in Canberra, were we to go 900 kilometres north and slightly east, we'd end up in a town called Bawarana. Bawarana is on the Barwon River on the New South Wales-Queensland border. It is the site of one of the largest intact fish weir systems in the world. So it's a series of rock formations in the river designed to catch fish and hold them in clear running water. It's over a kilometre long. By archaeologists' estimations, 10 to 20,000 years old. Last used probably when it wasn't full of water sometime this month. So here is a system architected over a multi-millennia reflects most sophisticated knowledge of technologies of the day, so lithics, in this case stone, and hydrology. It understands ichthyology, so fish and the movements of fish. It understood the movements of water and changes in that system. So it understood where it was and the technologies it was using. In order to make that function over multiple generations, you also have to have rules and processes. You have to have a clear sense of who's responsible for using it, maintaining it, caring for it, who gets to use it when and under what circumstances. Those weirs were built on the instructions of one of the cultural ancestral figures of those nations, a man named Biomi. And the notion there was to be able to create a system that would allow multiple nations to gather in a single point. Uh, mm, so it did a whole heap of things all at once. Yep. Many so, birds, one yep. stone. And Horrible so, analogy, but Yeah, yes. and so we live, we get to live in a country where people have been building yeah. complex dynamic systems yeah. for 20,000 years and maintaining them and knowing all of the long that it wasn't ever just about the technology, it was about... The humans, the culture, the reason you were doing it, about processes, about understanding the environment and about constantly making, tending and rebuilding and negotiating. And emotional and spiritual needs, all of that kind of stuff as well, all of it. I'm just interested just to go back to that letter, the open letter, I just want to ask very briefly, were you ever considered as somebody to sign that letter and would you have calling for the pause? I wasn't asked. And would you have signed it? I don't think so. Okay. Finally, this is a strange one. I did notice on your bio that you hold the Florence Violet McKenzie chair. I've no idea what that means. However, I did go and look up who Florence Violet McKenzie was. Well, well, Sarah, we should discuss that. So Florence Violet McKenzie was the first woman in Australia to have a qualification in electrical engineering. There we go. And she was a marvel. And Florence was a triple threat. In that sense, she ran her own business. She ran a radio shop in Paran and sold radios to people in the 1930s. She worked for the government teaching Australian military personnel Morse code during World War II. Awesome. And she taught electrical engineering all over the place. And delightfully, in the 1940s and 1950s, she became an advocate for the transition to Australia towards electricity. And she authored the all-electric cookbook, which was her attempt to get Australian women to understand why cooking on electricity is great. But if you read the book, what it secretly is all about is teaching Australian women how to fix their own devices. So there's an entire section about 
how electricity works, how to repair your own devices, how to think about safety, and she was... I mean, effectively, she was just, she was well, the parallel for me, yep. just to bring everything full circle, is I've just completed a campaign to encourage Australians to get off gas and get onto electric cooking. So I did notice the tea towels outside your office that Florence put together for the wives of Australia to get them familiar with electrical cooking. It's funny, isn't it? There's no such thing as a new idea and everything comes around again. Well, I really like Florence. She was part of an organisation called the Electrical Association for Women and they believed that you should be empowered about the latest technologies and so they used every tool at their disposals to empower women because they thought women were the gatekeepers in the home and so they believed that women should be able to understand how technical systems work. So Mm. they sent cookbooks, they put wiring diagrams on tea towels, they had showrooms where you could come and learn how to fix your own appliances and they were very big on the notion that technology was something you could actively understand and manage and that that meant having access to information and having access to skills and then having a community of people who shared your interests. Yeah, and brings us to the present day, doesn't it? One thing I take from this conversation is that while we're in this this wrestling pit, trying to understand it all while there's multiple conversations. I think we all need to be alive to it. We need to be part of these conversations. They will conflate. They will emerge. Outcomes will probably come about in that usual supply-demand kind of scenario that we find ourselves in, that that model's not going to be reinvented before Mm -hmm. we fix this problem. And so the more that we do speak out, speak up, Mm -hmm. the more that this will kind of morph its way, hopefully, to a scenario where AI does not wipe us out. That is correct. You know, much like my namesake chair, I also believe that means we have a responsibility to be better educated and work to do to make so that we are. And that, you know, that means we get to have agency. Yeah. So stay tuned to this podcast because this conversation will definitely continue here. Genevieve, thank you so much for your time. Oh, Sarah, you are most welcome. Right. So Genevieve's take on all of this was in some ways frustratingly academic But if I can distill it down to a tangible take, I think it's this. We shouldn't be asking the engineers, the tech dudes, whether their creations will kill us because their take is necessarily slanted. They're informed by the sci-fi dystopian fiction that they often read. But will this stuff kill us? What if I ask you, Genevieve? Now, in the interview, as you probably picked up, she suggests that there's a possibility that, in fact, we'll run out of power for it first. So the climate crisis is likely to be the bigger threat. I think that's possibly true. But when I hit stop on the recording, I tried to pin it down again. You know, what is the likelihood, Genevieve, that we will be killed by AI, let's say by 2100, you know, in about 80 years? Oh God, she said to me, a pandemic will get us by then. And she then broke into the whys and hows and wherefores. That's also a possibility. All this aside, I get Genevieve's point. We are in the middle of a great rearrangement, as she puts it. There is no global body that will hit pause for us, even if, you know, the tech leaders sign an open letter to this nebulous entity out there. And even if somebody did, I'd argue no one would actually stick to it. When it's been suggested so far in political and economic circles, the line that comes back is, yeah, but China and Russia won't pause, so we've got to keep it going. We have to beat them. You know, it's like the arms race. The solution, if Genevieve could possibly call it that, is what we're already doing. And I beamed when she said that bit. 
It's discussions like this. It's arcing up. It's the wrestle, always the wrestle. And it's about asking more beautiful questions, to quote David White, who's also been on this podcast. And I'll put that episode in the show notes. The other bit that got me super excited and enlivened was learning about that 1940s Macy Foundation conference in New York that aimed to ask all these big questions, you know, all the big, the big minds together in one room. Can you imagine such a conference, a giant discussion with Margaret Mead-like people talking octopus communications and all the rest? I find it so heartening to realise we've done this kind of thing before in equally existential times. And as per another great point that Genevieve makes, we have the frameworks in our Indigenous systems knowledge available to us too. Stephen Hawking once said, that AI is likely to be either the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. Stay wild with me on this one and join my Substack membership community if you haven't already. We are going rogue and wild with these kinds of discussions over there. It's a few dollars a month. Um, It keeps me gainfully employed and able to keep this podcast going, keep the conversation going the best way I know possible. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's essentially sarahwilson.substack.com. Anyway, I will see you once again next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.